Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots Call-In Show, where Aaron Mate and I take your questions. Of course, we want to urge everyone to subscribe to Useful Idiots on YouTube and also on Substack, where you hear great uh, behind-the-scenes moments and extended interviews and bonus content. You get to find out Aaron Mate's uh, nickname and its origin story. Uh, and not just that, you get to hear longer interviews. So, uh, without any further ado... Uh, we're going to take our first caller, Cade. Hi. Okay. Um, Hi. I guess I just wanted to ask, it seems to me like there's sort of like a schizophrenia sort of like to how several of like the politicians on different sides of this are ask, acting. I guess what I just don't understand, I guess most is how, you know, it can seem like we're maybe almost on the brink of war um, between like the U.S. and Russia, we've got senators calling for like direct involvement. Um, we've got like Zelensky saying um, we need to prepare for a nuclear strike by Putin, but also that World War Three has already started, um, and also that um, World War Three would start if he invade or if he if Ukraine tried to take back over Eastern Ukraine. And then. There's, you know, Putin started the war, and yet this whole time we've got oil and natural gas sort of still flowing with Europe and Russia and, you know, Ukraine. And I imagine, you know, almost any sort of like faction within Ukraine who wanted to could disrupt the flow of oil or natural gas. So it just, it seems to me kind of unsustainable. And so I guess I'm asking, I guess, if if you, you think that will continue where oil and natural gas will kind of keep flowing through Ukraine, or I guess maybe now that it's getting a little bit warmer and Europe, European countries probably aren't as worried about, you know, their citizens literally freezing to death if they cut off the flow of oil and natural gas, if, if um, you know, something's going to happen, you know, from any of the various sides uh, who might have an interest uh, in prolonging the war or escalating the war. That's a great point. Like, just as the U.S. and its allies are saying that Russia is this existential threat and we can't continue to fund their war machine, Europe is still spending a lot of money on buying Russian energy because they have no other choice. And they will continue to have no other choice. The only other choice is for, as the New York Times put it a few weeks ago, for Europeans to get poorer and colder. That's what they're asking European citizens to do if they want to completely cut Russia off. And I guess the calculation for European leaders like uh, Germany and France is whether, you know, how much blowback they'll face at home if they go along with the U.S. And I, I think it will be a lot. So I don't want to predict what's going to happen, but that's basically the, the dilemma they face. If they really want to take us to the, the full max of, of their rhetoric, then that means forcing their citizens into really tough uh, conditions. And I just don't think politically that's tenable. And that's where I think Russia has some strong leverage. that i just i also don't see how russia could i i never really understood how russia would be willing to go to war but not um sort of use their energy as leverage to you know negotiate peace and i guess i kind of assume that like you know there are some sort of extremist groups within obviously there are extremist groups within ukraine and i would think they would have an incentive to try to sort of escalate things um with an attack on you know i mean a pipeline i think is pretty much unguardable across the whole country. Um, so, I mean, I don't understand, you know, I'm not like a military expert or something, but it seems to me like it would be a sort of soft target. And I just, I mean, I, they fought over nuclear energy plants, but just that the oil and natural gas just keeps flowing. It's just kind of, kind of amazing to me how, how that can happen at the same time as a war um, where like, we're thinking it could escalate to like U S and Russian troops literally fighting in Ukraine. Yeah. You know, Ukraine, Ukraine makes a lot of money from transit fees from having Russian energy pass through Ukraine. So perhaps that's a factor in why Ukrainian militants haven't attacked this because they make money from it. And that's, it's, it's one irony that even throughout eight years of war between Ukraine and Russian backed rebels, the, the, the energy kept flowing. So, you know, both Russia and Ukraine were making money together, essentially uh, Russia by sending its energy through Ukraine and Ukraine taking a cut of the transit fees. It's one contradiction that, yeah, still has, still endures. 
All right, thanks. Thank you, Kate. All right. Up next is Andrew. Hey, can you all hear me? Yep. Right on. Yeah. Um, I wondered if you'd just give your thoughts on, I know it's kind of hard to kind of develop a response, but I mean, we see people migrating to new uh, platforms because of really increasingly heavy censorship, even though there already was fairly heavy censorship. Um, and then I wanted to, uh, bring up again that I think it was press TV had its website completely taken down and they had kind of a, a notification put up on the, the domain. If you went there, that this website has been removed by the United States government for such and such activities. And I'm wondering, like with a lot of the new platforms, like for instance, the one that we're on for any alternative sites is if we're going to see like, because there is no, you know, I guess just I'm going off of the, the, the description for the show about the pro-war bias and the Russia-Ukraine coverage. It seems like, you know, maybe it is really effective for some segments, a plurality or even some majority of the American public that are kind of buying the U.S. NATO narrative about the war. But for a lot of people, it's not. And so they're just re- resorting to more and more blunt censorship. So, like, do you foresee... Have there already been examples I don't know of of, of actually just deplatforming de- entire sites or applications? And is there anywhere we can go that's kind of the last little enclave of web services that's not provided by Amazon or immediately like in striking distance of that type of censorship? Well, first of all, let me say if any of our tech overlords are listening, we we bow before you and we plead for your mercy if you consider taking us off of the air, whether it's on any of our platforms, Twitter, yeah, YouTube. Love you. Yeah, we love you. We we thank we submit to your authority, and we thank yeah. you for the bounty that you have offered us. Yeah, you can no, seriously feedback, constructive feedback. We'll take that into account. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, well, look. I mean, an example. You asked for an example of entire platforms being taken down. Or if you remember Parler, remember Parler? Parler grew into like one of the biggest apps there was, and then all of a sudden after January six, where there was this claim that it was used to coordinate the riot at the Capitol, which I, you know, I think was really overblown and certainly did not compare to the use of Facebook, for example. Parler was just taken down. Its servers were like blocked and it was forced. It was forced out. And uh, so that's a straight up example of just like blatant state intervention. Uh, and it was the Democratic Party that was leading the way on that. They are, as Glenn Greenwald often points out they are the biggest advocates of censorship. They are. Yeah, wasn't um, that AOC that actually kind of publicly heckled uh, the tech platform that were still hosting Parler? I don't remember. Yeah, yes, she did. Yes, she did. Yes, she did. She certainly was an advocate of that. And that's the Democratic Party now. That's the, even the aspects of the progressive left. It's support censorship. And I mean, I remember there was all sorts of nasty, awful stuff being said on Parler, but that's the whole point. Either you believe in free speech or you don't. And if you don't believe in free speech, then we're setting ourselves up for a really dystopian world where dissenting voices get crushed. I mean, the cause, a personal cause for, for me is getting Scott Ritter's Twitter account restored because Twitter, I mean, although it's, it's you know, it's obviously not as important as all of us, you know, think it is, like, like those of us who spend time there think it is. It's just Twitter, but it still has some importance. It is a place where debate happens where influential people can be challenged on their claims, you know, they can be corrected. And Scott Ritter, with the authority he has as a uh, former Marine Corps intelligence officer, former chief UN weapons inspector, has studied Russian military doctrine really extensively. He was putting out a, a countervailing narrative to the war in Ukraine. He was just, he was just nuked by, by Twitter. And, uh, I, um, and then you saw the reaction to the possibility of Elon Musk buying Twitter. and th- th- Like the thinking was that he was going to be a more staunch defender of free speech. And what was the reaction? People were like liberals were freaked out. You know, they were nervous about that. So didn't it's scary. You, sorry to interrupt, but didn't you interview Jacques Bode just the other day? I did. And he's a former Swiss oh, intelligence officer. I did. Interview. Yeah, I think that was one of the last articles I saw uh Ritter post on his feed before they took him down again. And Bode kind of strikes me as another 
person in that same vein where he's not pro-Russian or anything. He's a Swiss. Uh, he was a Swiss military intelligence officer, right? And then and then was working as an advisor to NATO to stop the proliferation of small arms in, in eastern Ukraine. So it seems to me like that's the type of stuff I'm talking about. It's like it's so hard for um, for for people who are actually kind of just curious and trying to read different sources about this war to be dissuaded from reading a person like Jacques Bode. And, and so it seems like they have no other alternative, but to just crush that uh, by any means necessary. So I'm, uh, I'm wondering, uh, I'll, I'll shut up after this one, but just any, either of you have thoughts on like, is there anything kind of like proactive that we could be doing? Is there somewhere we can go that I don't know about, or are we just going to go back to like bulletin boards and door knocking, which I'm not opposed to. I mean, I think at least for the purposes of like a political campaign, you can't replace that with social media, but I do still think that social media is pretty uh, useful. I see a lot of, uh, pretty, pretty persuasive conversation going on there. Yeah. And I think, you know, Colin's an example of a place that has offered a really, uh, wide ranging place for different voices. And, you know, I, that to me, platforms like this show some promise, although I have no idea. I mean, who, who knows what, what the government and its tech allies can do. I mean, you know, they can, as Parler showed, they can shut down anything they want. So in terms of uh, ways to fight that, I mean, I, I have no idea. I, I just think um, keep your eyes open, you know, keep your eyes open and stay committed to your principles of free speech. Yeah. And we should also get on more platforms. More platforms. Jeez. Buy our assets. <laughs> yeah. Also, yeah. I, I do think another important thing about Twitter is it gives us insight into some really powerful people's uh, ideas. It's almost like uh, not a journal for them, but it kind of, they'll say things that are less um, like thought out or less crafted and it's a good insight into that. And then we can keep tabs on that stuff. So it's like a first draft for the powerful. Anyway. That's right. I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you, Andrew. Thanks to you both. Okay, Matan. Hello, Matan. Hey, guys. Can you hear me? Yep. Awesome. Uh, so I actually, I come from Israel, um, but I've been living in Berlin since a decade now. And uh, I just wanted to tell you that, like, I left Israel because of the, I mean, I'm, you know, a big opposer to everything that is happening there. And I, I thought back in the day that I kind of left insanity to a better place. And uh, yeah, the past couple of years, a bit more, uh, I find uh, gradually that uh, I didn't leave any insanity and insanity is like everywhere. So I just want to thank you so much for everything that you guys are doing. Um, Cause I think I would have lost my sanity uh, if not for your voice. So thank you, first of all. And um for my question, actually, I was in a visit in Israel when the whole thing broke, uh, like the war broke, and it was pretty interesting to see. Now, I know you're covering uh, U.S. media. Um, I don't know if you know or you know people who know, like, coverage in Israel and uh, media outlets. In... Yes, sorry, go ahead. No, this is really interesting and important to hear about coverage in other countries, so thank you. Oh, oh cool. Sorry. So... It's it's a it's a bloody circus. Like it's a, I don't know. I mean, U.S. media is a circus, but at least there is like the facade of some sort of, you know, uh, elegancy. I don't know how to say it, but like in Israel, it's just like it's ridiculous. Um, and it was pretty funny to like. It's just so the discussion is so low, and it was uh, very funny to see this bizarre dance that. They started to to dance there because, you know, it's kind of con common knowledge that uh, Israel can do whatever it wants in Syria. And it's also, correct me if I'm wrong, it's kind of common knowledge that they um, they coordinate this with the Russians. And as a country that I like to refer to as kind of like an American military base, basically, with no American soldiers... I was wondering if you have anything to say about why would Putin um, basically let them go ahead with, with what they're doing in Syria, which I know is still happening. Like they bombed like two days ago, three days ago. 
Uh, yeah, if you could weigh in, weigh in on that, it would be interesting. Thanks. It's a great it's a great question that I posed before too. I, I posed it to people when I was in Syria, and I still don't know the full answer. And basically, just for people who who don't know the full story, Israel has bombed Syria hundreds of times over the course of the dirty war that began in 2011, and they just recently bombed Syria a day or two ago. They do it all the time, and uh, they also even armed and funded sectarian uh, insurgents fighting the Syrian government. But yet Israel and Russia maintain pretty friendly ties and Israel and Russia has basically never stopped to my knowledge, Israel from carrying out these bombings, even though Russia is in Syria on the side of the Syrian government. And so why would Russia not more forcefully intervene? And the answer I've gotten is that Russia has its own narrow interests that aren't fully in line with Syria's Russia intervened in Syria to stop, basically prevent a takeover from ISIS and, uh, and other sectarian insurgents. That's what John Kerry admitted in a leaked uh, recording. He said that Russia came in because they didn't want a Daesh, which is ISIS government. Uh, because, as Kerry explained, and I've, I'm writing about this now in an article coming out soon, Kerry was saying that the U.S. was watching and sitting back and letting, and basically letting ISIS advance in the hopes that that would threaten Assad's government to the point where Assad basically agreed to leave office. So the U.S. was using ISIS as leverage to impose regime change on Damascus. And Russia came in and stopped that because they didn't want to risk a ISIS government. That's what Kerry said. And so then why would Russia let Israel bomb Syria so many times? Russia and Israel have their own relationship. I mean, as you know, Matan, you can speak this better than me. There's a lot of Russian natives who now live in Israel. Right. right Most of my there. friends are Russians. There we go. So they're, they're, that establishes some sort of you know, uh, mutual interest there and in that, you know, Russia has a lot of its citizens going to live in Israel. And uh, so Russia just sees, sees Syria a bit differently than, than uh, we might think it does. It has its own interest to protect with Israel. And so that's the best answer I can give. But yeah, it's puzzling. Like, why wouldn't Russia tell Israel to knock it off? But uh, they haven't, as far as I know. Right. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I kind of guess myself that it has something to do with, with narrow uh, interests, like you said. But, you know, um, yeah, that makes sense to me. The second thing uh, that has not a lot to do with that, but uh, I just want to tell you, Aaron, that I watched um, your interview with your dad. Uh, it was uh, kind of around identity. And uh, my grandfather um, was actually German. And he left Germany in 1936, and he uh, he actually went to Israel because no other place would uh, let them go in at the time. I don't know the full story. My dad didn't really ask uh, too many questions. Well, you know, uh, one thing, one thing yeah. I can tell you about that that period the the American Jewish lobby back then was against Jewish immigration to the U.S. because they wanted everybody to go to Israel. Huh. So uh, that you know that's a part of history that doesn't get. Uh, told very much, but it's true. There's a book about it uh, by an Israeli professor. I forgot his name, but it's, uh, Pape? it's, it's it has the word material in the, in the title, I believe. Segev or no? No, 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 no. no. It's not Segev. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's just about how basically Jews from around the world were basically forced to migrate to, to Israel because, to Palestine because no one else wanted them. And a factor in that was the U.S., Jewish lobby, which, you know, wanted to discourage Jewish immigration to the U.S. so people would go to Palestine. That's that's very interesting. I will I will look it up. Thank you so much. So uh, just to finish up. Um, so he, he left to Israel and uh, I'm kind of from, I'm come from a family that is very left wing and I left Israel back to Berlin. He, he actually came from Berlin. Uh, so, you know, I had all these uh, kind of identity. I don't want to call it crisis. It's funny definition to me like but you know you you kind of wonder like who do i and just after seeing your interview with your dad uh that was kind of like the final stretch for me and the the nail on the head that like i just identity sucks you know i'm just i'm like i'm myself i have my opinions and i don't need to identify with any nation or religious or whatever it just doesn't make any sense and it really freed me up so uh yeah i just want to say thank you very much and uh <laughs> I'm a big follower of you guys. And, uh, keep on doing what you're doing. Follow yeah. me because I want to reach out to you because I want to, I like uh, having guests on who talk about being dissidents like you are in Israel. Oh, I would absolutely love that. So follow me. Uh, 
uh, this one so I can contact you. Yes, I would ab- absolutely love that. Thank you so awesome. much, guys. Also, I want to give a shout out to this very good interview with Aaron, with uh, Aaron's father. Not doesn't compete, doesn't hold a candle to Aaron's because they have a special bond. But uh, we talk about how uh, his experience in the Holocaust turned him into a critic of Israel. So that's at the Katie Helper show. Um, yeah. Another yeah. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Anthony. Hi, Anthony. Hey, what's going on? Hey. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so I, I just, I'll keep it short and simple. Where's Gonzalo Lira? That's all. That's uh, pretty much what's on my mind today. You know, where's Gonzalo Lira? I don't know if you're familiar. I'm not, not to endorse everything he's ever said, but uh, just concerned about his well-being in Ukraine. Right. And just to recap for people, we talked about this a bit on Monday morning. Gonzalo Lira is a Chilean journalist who's been living inside Ukraine, presenting very critical reports of the Ukrainian government, presents a counter narrative to what we are used to in the U.S., and he's gone missing. People haven't heard from him in a few days. I heard from him last week. We were going to do a live stream. And apparently it's been since Friday, I think. But what I've heard conflicting things that I, I heard from someone saying that actually just that he lost power in his neighborhood, which makes sense because, you know, Ukraine's in the midst of war. So it's possible that it's just a power outage. But uh, other people are concerned for his safety and that he's been nabbed by the Ukrainian authorities, which has been happening. They have been sweeping up people who are critical of the government. And so people are worried. And that's that's all I know. Yeah. All right. Happy Monday morning. Thank you. Which is a reminder to everyone that uh, they can, of course, tune into Monday mornings at YouTube, youtube.com slash useful idiots, and they can subscribe so they don't miss anything. Because, yeah, we, we talked about it a little bit uh, at uh, at our Monday morning show. But good to review it for people who uh, are just tuning in. So thank you. Okay. No war. Thanks for taking my call in. Nice. Good morning, guys. Um, Good morning. I saw on the regular Useful Idiots last week that you covered Alex Walker here in Colorado. And I'm, like, obsessed with this guy right now. He's just, like, so off the deep end and absolutely hilarious with his condescension and like self self uh confidence like it's just amazing you guys had some great and takes just on it people should... who, who don't tune in which i feel bad for you your life could be so much better if you tuned in i do as well but uh uh that is someone running for congress right to unseat lauren bobert and he has some interesting campaign uh approaches he has this weird uh, ad where he's like, I'm a bull, not a bullshitter, um, or bull, not bullshit, and has this really weird campaign ad where featuring just like basically poop splattering all over. It's very weird. And then he did this really obnoxious TikTok where he thinks he's really funny and is just very condescending and disdainful towards all Bernie fans and progressive policies. It's so unappealing. He <laughs> has like another that. TikTok. He has another TikTok from like a month or so ago where he explains the Ukraine situation and describes NATO as a peacekeeping force. Oh my God. Really is a good comedian. Really, really rich. (laughs) But anyway, um, I wanted to ask you guys your thoughts on everybody's reaction to Chris Smalls going on Tucker Carlson's show last week. I thought Chris Smalls did a great job. He uh, he steered the interview in in his direction, even when Tucker was trying to pull him into a, a AOC uh, slamming uh, session. He just stuck to his narrative and made his points. And you know the people that are against it, I just I don't fully understand why they feel that way. Um, you guys mentioned the Zelensky Groundhog Day, but you forgot to say that he like also said he feels like Bill Murray. And I think you're dead right that he's being coached and uh, and that he's, uh, you know, trying to do these U.S. pop culture references to, I, I don't know, be more relevant here or be more uh, 
more uh, photogenic for the cameras or whatever. Photogenic not being quite the right word, but you know what I mean. And then um, I was wondering if Matt's going to be on any time again soon, make a, a guest appearance on Useful Idiots. Tybee. Yeah, we'll try that behind the scenes. I mean, he is he is pretty busy on his book leave, but we'll try to pull some strings. See, right. see if we have any luck. Uh, yeah. What did you guys think about the Chris? Oh, Chris Hall, sorry. So I actually didn't see it. I have to see it. It's on my list of things to see. Um, I'll watch it by uh, the time we take Useful Idiots this week. Um, and... Uh, I think that, though, I think that the discourse around people going on Tucker is very stupid. Uh, I think that people don't understand how media works. I think people don't understand platforming, this whole discourse around platforming. When Chris Smalls in no way platformed Tucker Carlson, Chris Smalls was platformed by Tucker Carlson, and that's a good thing. Anyone who would like refuse to get a huge audience to talk about an important organizing victory, which, yeah, of course, Tug Carlson doesn't care about it for the right reasons. But why would you deprive yourself of the opportunity, deprive the movement of the opportunity of having major exposure? So unless he went on there to, and I've heard that it was a very um, very well-directed interview on the part of Chris Smalls. Again, I haven't seen it yet. I will buy by the time we take useful idiots, but the discourse around this is constantly uh, shockingly stupid. You'll see it when you when you watch it, Katie. Even Tucker says he's like, "I've never been a real pro union guy, but it seems like maybe we should have a union in Amazon." Just to me, kind of shocking to hear Tucker Carlson yeah. say, and is I think proof of of uh, Chris Small's ability <laughs> to persuade people with his you know release well-founded arguments on on the subject um last thing what's can we get a little hint on this movie you're going to talk about for friday's show the suspense is is killing me (laughs) i'm i'm really torn on that because i feel like maybe this is a good thing to leverage to make sure people tune in <laughs> well, I'm tuning yeah. in. I haven't missed an episode in like two years, but yeah. Well, not everyone's as 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 wise as you are. So we'll just say that I did see a movie that's in the the zeitgeist, and I'll be offering a very limited, exclusive, but also probably disappointing analysis. I may have to read up on it before I talk about it. <laughs> but as I said on the Useful Idiots Monday morning, I was reluctant to say the movie because. Uh, that would just that announcement is like 50% of the content I'm going to provide <laughs> about it. So, yeah. Well, I eagerly wait Friday. Thank you. Thank, Katie. you. Thank you guys. You guys have a good day. Thanks. You too. Oh, welcome Lucius. Unmute yourself by uh, hitting the mic icon at the bottom right of your screen. Sorry, I was muted for a second there. Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Hey, gang. Um, Yeah, so first off, just wanted to thank you both for doing this uh, app and just in general making yourselves accessible to your audience uh, way beyond what most people in the current events biz are doing. Um, big fan on Twitter and, you know, all your platforms. Um, also people have been asking about other, um, options, uh, places to go. And it's not a platform in the sense of an app, but, um, my favorite, uh, recent discovery is a revolutionary blackout network, formerly Fred Hampton leftists, who I think just turned one year old. So I was hoping at some point, maybe you could get one or more of the representatives of that network on the show. Um, there are amazing people like Sabby Sabs, who I think you've talked to, Katie, I'm not sure about Aaron, um, Compton J, Rome, uh, and Nick, I forget his last name. So um, that was my little plug for them. Um, and my question was, there is a lot of, a, a lot of hype of uh, massacres. Uh, Biden has said genocide, describing a Russia's invasion more than once. And uh, 
I've heard conflicting accounts of the actual numbers of civilian casualties, deaths, um, and also it's very unclear in many of these war zones whether it's, uh, for example, Azov or other groups that have been known to do false flag attacks, um, or whether it's Russia. But in either case, I'm just wondering if you could give clarification on how many people have died and maybe how it ranks compared to some U.S. invasions, for example. Well, I think it's, I mean, I have no idea the actual toll, but it's pretty clear that it's, it's pretty undisputed that less people have died in Ukraine at this point of the war than had died in Iraq at the comparable period. That's just established. So this idea of calling it a genocide is just a, a joke. It's amazing to see how easily abused the, the term genocide is, which actually means something. I mean, this is an ugly war. War is awful, but it's not a genocide. I mean, everyone, everyone knows that. Um, and so, but the term is being deployed for propaganda purposes. That's it. Well, I'd say that a lot of American news consumers don't know. So that's a problem. It is a problem. I agree. I totally agree. And that's why we're here. That's why we're here. Yeah. And it's part of the script, right? Which is, you know, Nazis, um, uh, people are, you know, Nazis like Saddam Hussein was a Nazi, um, Putin's like a Nazi, and they are engaging in genocide and eliminationism. Uh, yeah, so familiar script. It's the lubricant of regime change. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, thanks, Lucius. We got Mike. Welcome, Mike. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah. Hi, how are you? Good, you? Oh, great. Well, pretty good. Um, sorry, my dog just decided to go crazy. I mean, it's fair, anyway. enough your dog is, it's fair enough your dog is barking because you are using your dog for your avatar. So right. your dog deserves to speak. Exactly. Yeah, that's actually a different dog, but... Oh, I'm sorry. Well, no, one's cool. barking. He's barking in... He's barking at the dog that's in the avatar. There right. <laughs> but, um... Right. So I had a couple of things, and I think I might have forgot what I was going to say. But anyway, um, one thing that gets me is that Zelensky said that the world should prepare for Russia uh, using nuclear weapons. And that's the headline. But the true, but then the CIA is saying that they don't have any practical evidence that this is true. But the headline is uh, the CIA, Russia could, cannot take lightly the threat. So the evidence isn't even in the headline. There's no evidence at all, is there? That what Zelensky's saying, it's just something that he's just brought up out of whole cloth that Russia may use nuclear weapons. I mean, is there any evidence at all? And they just spout this as if it's true? No, and, and that's the whole point is these people can say whatever they want and the U.S. media will just nod their head and say, oh, well, that's wow, that's scary. They'll never ask the question, what evidence do you have for that? It doesn't even cross, doesn't cross their minds. That's why I don't know if you saw the article that was in NBC News a week or two ago by Ken Delanian, who's like a reliable CIA stooge, where these anonymous officials told Ken that, yeah, um, when we say something in public and we claim it's based on intelligence. The intelligence doesn't have to be rock solid. We could just be saying it because we want to like stop Putin from doing it theoretically. Um, but, and they were saying that in reference to their claims a few weeks ago that Russia was preparing to use chemical weapons. And what they told Ken Delaney was, Oh yeah, we actually had no evidence of that whatsoever. So what they're really saying is they're just, they're just making these claims for PR for rhetoric. Yeah. For, for, for propaganda. That's what it's there for. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, I have, I was a massive anti-Trump guy in 2016 before the election. And most of the time he was in office. And what, until I started seeing how the Democrats reacted to the whole thing. And, um, you know, so I became, I started criticizing a lot of the Democrats' reactions and the things that they started doing. And, um, you know, and I got called 
pro-Trump and all this stuff, <laughs> all, all these people that I know. And then, and every the funny thing is, is that everybody, all these people on the so-called left establishment, I guess, talk about how how duped Trump supporters are, how anybody could ever believe anything the guy ever said to them. Yet, in my opinion, from what I've seen since 2016, they are being duped just as much by the by the spinning of the Democrat. The Washington establishment, it's not just Democrats, it's Washington establishment to to believe these narratives that are just be unbelievable. It's like the one narrative, like you, Putin wants to take over Europe, right? He wants to take over Europe. You see in one, one space. And then a little while later, you see the Russia is so incompetent, they can't even take over Ukraine. And it's the same people saying those two things. And it's like, Nothing seems to make any sense, but you can't get anybody. I can't get anybody to to see it. It's crazy. I don't know. I just thought when you. I hear you. Listen, that that's the beauty of war propaganda. It doesn't have to make sense. It just has to make sense for the narrative and anything that can keep the war going. It works. They just pick and choose. And, you know, in the situation, Zelensky is like a hero. He's somehow able to do media interviews 24 hours a day while also leading his country in a war. It's all a complete farce. It's crazy. I mean, and just the whole political situation with the, the, the contradictions of the Democrats about why they lost to Trump. I'm like, I always tell these people, how do you, you know, if the Democrats are so great, how could they lose to the worst candidate in the history of the world? You know, and all they have to say to that is Russia and, you know, disinformation. And it's like got nothing to do with Hillary Clinton. It's got nothing to do with Obama. It's it's like you're either with us or you're against us. You know, so we're going to give the Democratic Party a free reign to do whatever they want as long as they're not Trump. That's what's amazing. Absolutely. It's all projection. They're the ones who've actually been waging a massive disinformation campaign against the American people to blame Russia for their own failures. And it's helped bring us into the situation we're in now, because as a part of that campaign, Russia was made to be this demonic right. enemy that we had to oppose all diplomacy with. And uh, that largely fueled, that really helped fuel the situation we're in, we're, we're in now. So it's not just dangerous domestically to the U.S., it's dangerous for the world. That's why I'm, I'm not a Russiagate fan. <laughs> you know, yeah, so anyway. I mean, there's still people arguing that Russiagate, you know, that it was all true. and I know. I know. Um, I know. The the laptop. I had a guy telling me that even though um, whatever news or oh New York Times said that the laptop you know was true, he's like, well, yeah, but the stuff in the emails was bullshit, and they spun it in a way, and it's like, and and I finally said, well, what evidence do you have that Russia had anything to do with it? And the guy just basically says. Okay, you got me. Yeah, same. It's the same. It's the exact same. Like, what's amazing is it's the exact same playbook two elections in a row. 2016, the Hillary Clinton yeah. emails, they showed corruption in her wing of the party. What was the response? It's all Russian misinformation. 2020, Hunter Biden's laptop shows corruption with Biden's son. Same playbook. Oh, it's all Russian misinformation. And it worked. Mm-hmm. It worked on a large number of people. It's it worked in crazy. 2020, but. Yeah. I mean, the thing I try to tell people is that I'm actually, I would rather tell you the truth, I'd rather see the Democrats in there, but not as they are. And I'm actually trying to help the Democrats or the Democratic people, the, the followers of Democrats. They don't want your help, Mike. They don't want your help. They want, to bl- they want to blame Russia for everything. And it, even if it leads <laughs> us into World War III, that's just how it is. It's we have to respect crazy. their choices. It's very scary, man. I'm telling you. I'm it's very scary. Mike, thanks for the call. Yeah, sorry to keep you going there. No, no, no thanks worries. For thanks for letting me vent. Yeah. Bill, my Colin sparring partner, partner, you are up. <laughs> I don't know why it is that whenever um, I talk to you guys, somebody's mowing outside my window, so I have to run it into my bedroom. But um, <laughs> so um, I wanted to try to I wanted to try to give myself a little bonafides here. Um, during the first Iraq war, uh, you know, I formed a, a group at my university to protest the war. Uh, I had thousands of people. We managed to get the um, faculty Senate to 
vote to oppose the war. We had a march. Um, you know, I was like the, the main instigator of it. So I'm not someone who, <clears throat> by na- by his nature, um, buys into or is not concerned with the imperialistic aspects of American foreign, foreign policy. Um, I'm trying to play a little bit of a so- Socratic role here because um, because one of the things that I I hate seeing about I don't know if you're uh, happy with these terms or the new left or the alt left that we're, we're starting to see arise, you know, you're getting categorized, um, <clears throat> you and, and Greenwald and other people. Um, one of the things that kind of concerns me is it's, is I don't want to see you end up on the wall at Père Lachaise. I don't want to see you just, you know, I mean, when Marx lost two elections in a row, he said, you know, that's enough with uh, electoral politics. Uh, it doesn't work. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> So to be try not to be too facetious, what I'm trying to say is you just get you're just going to get blamed as you're just going to get categorized as blame America first. Um, I'm talking about the electoral, the, the 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 disgusting, simplistic electoral facts of the United States politics today. Um, so what is what what bothers me just generally about, you know, social media um, is that. You know, there's a lot of virtual signal, virtue, virtue signaling, and there's a lot of, um, you know, I mean, if if we re- if countries really did what they said they believe in, uh, war would have been banned because there was there was a law that was or a treaty that was passed in like eighteen uh, nineteen ten that said it, it it said that aggressive war is illegal, um, <laughs> and so if, and I think pretty sure that almost every country signed it. And they've all signed the UN Charter, and you know, and they aren't supposed to be doing the things they're doing, and they have they just keep doing it. And so when I talked to you that one time, I was trying to say everybody does it; it's a fact, it's granted. You know, we just should take it as stipulated that people, especially in the United States, is going to screw with other countries to the extent that it can in its own interest. And that, but I think, I think all countries do that. Um, but the United States has more power than other countries, so it's able to do even more than other countries. So, so I'll just cut this down to just say, you know, one of the things you could try to, you know, I'm not saying you can't do anything, but what you should try, in my opinion, is focus on stories that aren't about geopolitics and a macro level. Um, because when you, because what broke McCarthyism is when, um, when they said, do you have no decency, sir? And it, it has shocked the American conscious consciousness. And so that's when you want to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Uh, you've got to, you've got to speak to the American people on that level, because on the macro political level where you just, where you talk about us imperialism, it's not going to play in Peoria. You're just going to keep losing. And when you just look at, you look at like Bernie or something, I mean, you know, I love Bernie. I voted for him twice in the primaries. Um, I don't think, I almost think we need to give up on electoral politics if we're coming from our perspective, seeing all these things that are wrong with America and, you know, do what Rousseau said, you know, John, he said, give up on, you know, direct democracy. That's why populism is about starts with direct democracy Stock starts with things like uh, referendums and um, and unions, like what's happening at Starbucks. And so, from a, it's really hard you. to get. Yeah, yeah Bill. So that, that's I all hear, I had to say. Yeah, yeah. So if I hear you correctly, you're saying that for the left to be successful, we need to tone down, or at least not just focus on issues like imperialism, global conflicts, but just you know speak to people at a local level, their concerns. So that we're more relatable, which I, I totally agree with. I totally agree with. I mean, yeah. my my particular focus personally for me is foreign policy. So I mean, that's what I think I'm I'm good oh, at. Oh, I know. That, yeah. That's what I fo- focus on. But but in terms of like the as a for the left, absolutely. And like, well, you know, you think of some of the success stories that where we did break imper- U.S. imperialism in the past and we exposed it. 
Mm-hmm. I think about, you know, the church commission, was it the church commission or was it the, uh, you know, we basically during the seventies for, for this bright shining moment, we were able to expose a light on yeah. American foreign policy. That was um, the church. That was the church committee doing con- what it's supposed to do. The Senate doing congressional oversight of the intelligence community. And they exposed a whole bunch of really shady stuff with, with COINTELPRO where the CIA and other intelligence right. officials were spying on destabilizing, subverting Americans. And that was, mm-hmm. an, that was a golden moment for congressional oversight, which has completely been abandoned since. I mean, completely. Uh, we still don't know any of the, so many of the details of the war on Syria, of the dirty war in Syria, for example, we don't know about. We know it was one of the most expensive programs in U.S. history. We know that only because of Edward Snowden. He leaked documents showing that like one dollar out of every 15 dollars in the CIA budget was going to the dirty war in Syria. Now, normally that's something that would come out if we had meaningful congressional oversight, but it just wasn't happening and it's not happening now. Yeah, I'm trying to think what it is. I mean, was it just the fact of the failure in Vietnam or Watergate? What was it that made it possible? I think the Pentagon Papers had an impact. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't alive then, but I'm, I think it was the Pentagon Papers had an impact. And there were just members of Congress who were more willing to do their jobs across the aisle, mm-hmm. across the aisle in, in both parties. And it's just it, it's different now. Yeah. Well, I uh, keep keep doing what you're doing. I do appreciate it, both you and Katie. So thank you very Thanks, much. Well, let me say, I don't appreciate. I'm a little disappointed that you didn't come to debate today. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm a little upset. I'm a little upset about that. Well, okay. I well, just the one thing that I I did the super chat earlier was just there is a difference between. Uh, you know, you were saying that we we told them not to implement the. Um, not to implement the, um, sorry, my brain's fried. Mint. Uh, the mints too, yeah. There's a difference between us not implementing and what you said later, which, or which kind of clarified is that we we didn't force them to by saying we were going to cut off arms. And so yeah. that, and that now, is a distinction, right? Yeah, so, sure. I mean, but, 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 yeah. but also, we also don't, don't know what happened behind the scenes. And I would no. bet, I, I would bet that when declassified documents come out, we're going to see U.S. officials saying, don't implement Minsk. I, I, now, I can't prove that for sure, but the fact that it didn't happen says to me that the U.S. told Ukraine not to because Ukraine is very dependent on the U.S. Just an example, Hunter Biden didn't get his job in Ukraine because Burisma thinks he's a, he's a brilliant guy. They got it because of his father's influence inside the country. Mm-hmm. And that speaks to the level of U.S. influence inside of, inside of Ukraine. And it's continued since. Uh, Ukraine's yeah. become completely dependent on the U.S. since 2014. And, and Jared, so, and, yeah, Jared Kushner in China has the two billion dollars or whatever he he just got that needs yeah. to be investigated as well. But Absolutely. but the thing, yeah, I think unfortunately we, um, I think we are in a situation where we don't know what's going on behind the scenes, and we can't trust our government. But um, I I like to I would like the left to get real politic a little bit, you know, and strategic because, you know, we can be bleeding hearts only so far. And, and like I said, we're going to end up on the wall at Paralachaz and we're going to get shot because we, we, we got it. There's only so far we can go with, with feelings and, and good intentions. You got to have some, you know, Machiavellian strategy at some point. <laughs> so that. that's the world, that's the world we live in. You know, I hear that. I totally okay. hear that. Thanks. Thanks. Sure, thank you. Yeah. Rich. Hello. Hi, Rich. We can we can barely hear you, or at least I can barely hear you. Can you hear me now? Not really. Oh, so just just uh, ignore it then, and I'll try some other time. All right. Thank you, Rich. I mean, Katie, am I right that the audio is very low? Anyway, Steve, let's try you. Steve, you're up. Hey, hey, Aaron. Hey, hey, Katie. Thank you hey for the call. Uh, I appreciate everything you guys do, Aaron, especially your father, uh, my uh, my sister-in-law's uh, therapist, and she actually uh, turned me on to him. Uh, so yeah, thank you uh, for the, for doing that. I just had a, a I guess a not really a question, but uh, asked for some advice regarding uh, talking to people about the obviously the current situation in Ukraine. Um, to preface, what Putin's doing is evil. It's terrible but not being able to hold another thought of kind of how we got here kind of is very frustrating. And growing up, um, I didn't follow politics as much um, during the original Iraq war in you know, 2002, 2003 when that kicked off. But I feel like 
we're living through the same thing and talking with people who are around my age from that time, now knowing a lot of the lies that got us into that war, these same people are still kind of defending certain aspects of kind of what we're doing or what, uh, you know, sides are doing in the, in the conflict in Ukraine. And uh, it's really hard to know, like, you can have, I guess you can have an opinion on anything, but knowing what we know about that back then, I feel like I'm having flashbacks to, you know, what do you believe? Where do you get your information? Um, you know, it's, it's crazy. And it's, it's actually scary to see that, you know, the mindset of people, even with information, again, not to completely discount everything we're being told, but at least put it under the microscope and give me all the details. Cause that's kind of like, I mean, uh, you know, the smart way to go about it. So, you know, we don't do this again in 20 years. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. I don't know what else I could say. I mean, it's, um, it's incredible how powerful our propaganda system and how, how, how well it works. I've seen it happen in my own life. Like, you know, a lot of my, all my friends are progressive minded, but yet a lot of people just by consuming, you know, mainstream media just have accepted so many of the underlying narratives about the Ukraine conflict, for example, that are false, that are just not factual, but they have no other, but they, you know, but they don't listen to me. So, you know, they, they have no other choice, but to just, but to just, um, you know, hear the mainstream narrative and, and believe that it's true. Yeah. As much as, um, as much as we have access to information now with the internet and everything else, I feel like we're so bogged down with everything that, Again, not to defend people's views or, you know, whichever way they're looking, but, you know, you do have to dig more now with more information. So I can. Oh, my God. You have to do like how. research. <laughs> you have to do heavy research projects because yeah, yeah. it's I don't fault anyone for not knowing, you know, the full story because it's a lot of work and people don't have time for it. They have lives to live. Yeah. But thank you again, Katie, Aaron. I love all the work Thanks. you do and, and keep doing it. And hopefully at some point things will turn around. So, gotta have hope. Yeah. Thanks, thanks, guys. Amen. Bariha. Hi, Bariha. Hi. Good morning, guys. How are you guys doing? Good. You? Uh, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, um, and I was wondering if I could um respond to your um uh, conversation with Vijay and um. Uh, Aaron Matty's conversation with the uh, the professor from Pakistan about the the coup, the so-called coup that has been discussed. Uh, is that possible? Can I talk about that? Sure. Okay. So, um, well, I mean, just just I am from Pakistan. I'm uh, you know I'm permanently settled in the U.S. now, uh, but. Yeah, I do have a perspective and I have a background in history. So I was hoping to just like sort of like bring a little bit more context to that, to those conversations. Um, so first of all, the, the most important thing to understand is that there hasn't been a U.S. Um, sponsored or U.S. supported uh, coup in Pakistan against uh, the government of Imran Khan. So that's that's the most important thing. What happened was that the opposition parties in the parliament were were going to bring or had brought um, a no confidence motion against Prime Minister Imran Khan, and he what he did was he sacked his own speaker and he um, sacked the whole of the parliament, and that that's something that is illegal under the constitution because once the once the no confidence motion has been brought up on the floor of the National Assembly to dissolve the parliament is is illegal, is against the constitution. Um, so he did that and the Supreme Court immediately took notice of that. So he basically brought a coup against his own government. And because he is an absolute master of narrative, um, he was able to spin it um, as, um, as, an, as a move by the U.S. government against him, which was also a completely spurious um, claim, which I can sort of like provide some context on later. But what but what happened was that the Supreme Court immediately took notice, and it and and 
while this was happening, while it was deliberating the case, um, it literally took three days. And th uh, for those three days, Pakistan did not have any government, so to speak, at all. And it took three days and it took its time. And it said that what Imran Khan did was completely illegal against the Constitution. Um, and it restored the, the, par the parliament to its former um, condition or status. And then there was a no confidence motion duly brought in by the by the duly elected opposition members of the national assembly and it was carried and that is why imran khan was no more uh, the the prime minister of the country now here's another a little bit more background on this so imran khan uh, and his and his popular uh, you know so called um, populist uh, party in Pakistan, uh, when they uh, were elected in 2018, they had the full backing of the military establishment. And the military establishment wanted Imran Khan to be their, to be their man because they um, had always, you know, forwarded this narrative that all the politicians in the country are are corrupt, and which is why periodically they they justified their 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 at least three coups that Pakistan has been under since its seventy five year history. So um and 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 over the over the years because it became more and more difficult to justify this narrative because it was all wrong because all of their all of the cases that were brought against uh, these so called corrupt politicians never really resulted in any convictions um and military rule was extremely unpopular in pakistan they realized that they had to bring this this sort of you know this guy that was their person in the parliament that was you know that that apparently you know, said all the democratic words, but was would would be able to, um, you know, uh, support their policies in government. Um, but but what happened was that Imran Khan completely failed in in administering the country. It, he changed several prime uh, several finance ministers. His, his, okay, Freya, Freya, I'm gonna kind of hear because. Uh... I totally hear you, and I just. But we have other callers, and I don't want to, you know, take up um, this much time on on Pakistan, which so, something that neither Katie or I are experts on. But I hear you, and I appreciate you presenting a, a contrary point of view, which I think you have um, really well to the guest that we had on. Katie interviewed BJ Prashad. I interviewed a scholar in Pakistan named Junaid Ahmad. I don't know enough about Pakistan to weigh in on what you just said. What I do mm -hmm. know is a few things: is that when I hear someone accuse the U.S. of a coup, I don't reflexively accept it, but I at least have to take it seriously, just given mm -hmm. the preponderance mm -hmm. of U.S.-backed coups around the world. And that I, what I do know is that Imran Khan was being critical of the U.S., and he had drawn uh, U.S. ire. He was taking a neutral stance on the, on the war in Ukraine. He, was not, he definitely was not going along with the U.S. stance. Mm -hmm. He he recently visited Putin in Russia. Mm -hmm. He criticized U.S. drone strikes, and so when he's accused the U.S. of backing a coup against him, I at least have to take it seriously. I, I don't. No, I, I completely it, I, understand. But, I completely also, understand. And, and also, but and also, and I will say this too: I've seen the footage, and there's no doubt he's got a strong base of support. Like those protests that he's been leading after the coup are massive, absolutely massive, and so you know everything you're saying could be true. But I just felt that it was important to give a countervailing point of view to what we've heard. And, you know, neither as far as, you know, Vijay Prashad and my guest are not they're not Imran Khan supporters. They're not saying he was perfect. Both of them, I, I, I think, admit that he had you know major flaws in his policies. But mm -hmm. the fact is that I think what's undoubtable is he has a strong base of popular support inside Pakistan. And, I, and that's at least to me worth noting and taking seriously. I, I absolutely agree with you, but here's an, a little bit more context to that, that the right now, the person that's supporting him is the former intelligence, intelligence chief in the army who wanted 
to become the chief of the army staff and you wanted to be promoted to that post and and those were the people that is the faction in the military i have i have this is my theory and it's been, it's backed up by a lot of evidence that there is a division in the pakistani military the the part of the military that created the taliban and that also brought imran khan into politics and the part of the military that wants to at this point re realizes that they have to normalize relations with india and to have they have to stop beating the war drums and they have to make pakistan not a security state but uh you know a social welfare or developing uh, normal developing nation so yeah. so there is there is a serious schism in the army right now where where a part of the army is helping iran khan because iran khan basically does not really have any political standing in uh, as as a as a true politician he's a he's a you know he's a creation um so okay i, I got would, you I, and I understand that I went on a little bit too long and I understand that, you know, there is, it is really very complicated. And the, the, the American, the American uh, cable that he was referring to was, uh, was an internal cable that Daniel Liu uh, sent to his, to, to the State Department saying, oh, you know what, this guy's administration is pretty bad. And if maybe it seems that he might be ousted from office and whoever is his successor would probably be a little better than him because he's so bad at just general, generally administering the country. So there there's it's that we, it, uh, the, even the foreign policy establishment in the country feels that that was a red, that was a normal cable. That did not mean that there was any, um, you know, and, and as far as, as well, let me, okay, listen, as, listen, listen, I'm going to cut you up there. Just the fact that a, a, a powerful U S diplomat is weighing in at that level about, who the Ukrainian leader, uh, sorry, who the Pakistani leader should be. Mm -hmm. That, that to me sounds like interference, but look, um, for I appreciate the call. We're going to move on to the next caller because we want to get to everybody that we can before we cut out, which is actually going to be very soon. So thank you for the call and thanks Good. for the feedback on interview. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye. Thank you guys. Bye. And Hannah, you will be our, you will be close to our last caller. All right, go ahead. Hello. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I want to talk about uh, Fortress U.S. plus Canada and Fortress Europe. And uh, Fortress Europe is a uh, launching pad for projection into the Middle East and Africa. And uh, Ukraine being uh, NATO, just protecting its eastern flank in that sense. And I want to talk about the what are the vulnerabilities of the most powerful forces on Earth? I mean, putting us, everyone just talked about nuclear apocalypse, but... Uh, the U.S. actually is attacking Eurasia from the West and the East, like, let's say, Taiwan, China. It wouldn't win. So it's a con. So, like, what is the what is the vulnerability of NATO? Plus, I was thinking that the pipeline into the heart of Germany. I mean, that's the main. I mean, how important is Germany as a launching pad for Fortress Europe? And um, I. I would talk about the racial aspects of what these fortresses are trying to protect, like whiteness or white power or whatever. But I don't think that uh, I would pursue such an argument because I, I you know, I, but I'm curious about like uh, uh, white power projection in global affairs. And that's pretty much all I can say because I've never talked before. I never called into a show. So I'm pretty inarticulate. Well, thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. Yeah. I have no idea. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, have nothing, I, I have nothing insightful to add, but I think yeah, uh, that's cool. Yeah, I think we're raising. <laughs> uh, I think we're raising is something important to think about. And uh, with that, we're going to have to wrap this week. Uh, we got to go. So, oh, Hannah, can we check with Rich? Sorry, we we told him we would try to get him. Okay, Rich. Really quickly with Rich, but thanks, Hannah. That was a cool question. All right, Rich. And Nasser, apologies. We're going to have to get to you next time. Yeah, Nasser, first next time. Okay, Rich. Let us know. Unmute. Press the um, microphone icon at the bottom right. All right. Sorry, Rich. Nasser. Right. Nasser gets the final call. Okay, Nasser. Here we go. Oh, thanks so much, Ashley. I'm lucky. I'm lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So the I mean, two very quick. Uh, remarks. First, that you know, if you had a good media, 
at Practical Media, they would ask, you know, Coons, uh, Senator Coons, that you guys are saying that uh, Ukraine is winning. So if Ukraine is winning, so we, so you know, so we don't need to send troops. You know, they don't ask these questions. Yeah, it's good simple, point. You know? Good point. That's a good point. If Ukraine yeah. is winning, yeah. If if Ukraine is winning, so we don't need to send troops. And then, uh, yeah. So I, I mean, this is, and also I think you, about the pro-war bias. In my opinion, it's not that more about. It doesn't seem like a propaganda. It, 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 it's more like they take, I mean, they take solace in saying those things. You know, they know that uh, the fate of the war, mm-hmm. but because they just, you know, it's kind of a delusion. You know, we're all humans when we are in a bad situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just take solace in things that are not real, you know, not yep. true. So we just, you know. And so we just try to do the same thing again and again, or actually say the same thing in this case. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I totally agree. Thank you so much. What a great way to wrap. Thank you guys. Thank you so much for coming to this call in and we will see you next week. Thanks, everybody. This was great. Usefulidiots.substack.com to get more, and we'll see you back here next time. Great. Bye, everyone.